The Perfect Ten. With Steve Allen, voice of the NRL and six-time Radio Award winner. Yeah, welcome to another edition of The Perfect Ten. It's been a little while between drinks, but that's the way we roll at The Perfect Ten. And a big finish to 2023 is coming up, including Scotty Drinkwater, superstar fullback from the North Queensland Cowboys. Jack Cogger will join us, Premiership winner from the Penrith Panthers, and what a game he played late against the Brisbane Broncos. Both Nathan and Ivan Cleary said that Jack made the difference for the Panthers to win their third in succession, the first team since Parramatta in 1981, 82 and 83. I said on local radio last week, the three tries from Ezra Mam is the best 10 minutes of rugby league in a grand final that I've ever seen. Just incredible, only for a masterclass. In fact, a performance for the ages from halfback Nathan Cleary, who won his second Clive Churchill medal. But let's get down to business with episode 44 and the first Australian woman to row solo across two oceans, the Atlantic and also the Pacific. In fact, the first woman in the world to row the Pacific unassisted and without stopping. Now, you know I love the stats. So this began with a pair of Norwegians who rode from Manhattan to France in 1896. Since then, there's been 900 attempts and only two-thirds of those have been successful. For Michelle Lee, her inspiration is Roz Savage. Can you believe she's rode all three, Atlantic, Pacific and the Indian Oceans? So Michelle deals with hurricanes, with sharks, strong currents that send her way off course, and also loneliness. In fact, at times, if you watched her videos, She's almost like Tom Hanks in that movie Castaway, where at times she's dehydrated, fatigued and delirious as well, but she battles on. And if you want a case study in mental strength and resilience, look no further than Michelle Lee, an absolute legend. And I'm sure you're going to love the podcast in just a few moments time. As always, we do this thanks to Robson Civil Projects, our proud naming rights partner. In the last week, they've been shining a light on their partnership with Mates in Construction. When it comes to improving mental health, we all have a role to play and Mates in Construction was formed in 2008 and is dedicated to saving lives. If you get a chance, check them out on socials. They've got about four and a half thousand followers on Instagram alone. Robson Civil Projects are also supporting Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And recently, the entire team spent some time at the Ronald McDonald House facility at John Hutter Hospital in Newcastle. So hats off to Robson Civil Projects, constantly and very generously giving back to worthwhile causes. And if you'd like to work for a third generation company, just check out the careers page on the Robson Civil Projects website. Okay, let's get cracking. If you're looking to be inspired, motivated to achieve something in any field in 2023 and beyond, then this is the episode for you. Michelle Lee, welcome to The Perfect 10. 
<laughs> Good morning, Steve. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, what a pleasure. And like I said a moment ago, so we met for like a public speaking session and it was at Sydney Olympic Park. You just refreshed my memory. It was 2017 and look at what you've done since then and overcoming these enormous obstacles just to get to the start line. Yeah, it's um, yeah. let's go back to 2017. So you were introduced to me by um, a mutual colleague and they said, you know, here I am entering into this world, unknown world of what I was about to embark on and, you know, hoping that maybe I'll get some sort of speaking gigs, knowing that I'm not a speaker and I needed some tuition. So that is where you came in and we had a great session that day. I remember you took me on a bit of a tour. We have come a long way. We have achieved a lot and we have had a lot of obstacles and challenges, which, you know, I love highlighting those because, uh, you know, it's just a story of overcoming. And, and you know, when you're passionate about something and you throw yourself in 100%, you'll committed fully without conflict you've got that whole heart and brain coherence there's no conflict between your head and your heart what you desire and and, you know that vision of what you want to achieve I have proven that uh, you know not even I'm not an athlete not an elite not a rower uh, and I've proven that you can do anything you know I wasn't a born adventurer I didn't come from adventuring parents where I was you know thrown on the on the road and taught to fend for yourself so really I've come from very humble beginnings I was not the Olympian I was not the gold medalist but um, just through having that vision of you know and the clarity of what you want to achieve and then trusting in the universe there's a big message there for me you know I was learning that every step of the way that when you do fully commit and you have faith in you know the universe is conspiring for you to achieve your goals Everything and everybody comes into your life that you need to make that happen. Um, And that's what I've experienced. So I I try to impart that onto, you know, anyone I I sort of share my story with to know that you can have this too. You, it's accessible to all of us. If we want it bad enough, we can make it happen. So your dream begins after reading a book by Roz Savage. Is that correct? That is correct. I always issue a warning, be careful what you read because, (laughs) you know, it was simply a book that plagued me so consistently and persistently that I eventually sat down and said, you know, it's like that Chinese torch, you know, the drip, dripping tap on your head. I thought if I don't do this, I'm going to die wondering. And um, it's that simple. I was inspired by a book and everything that she overcame. You know, it was a book of hardship. It was a book of everything that could go wrong, did go wrong. But she overcame and she triumphed. And I was like, you know, doing the fist pump as I read the book. Yeah, you go, girl. Every time she got back up when she was knocked down. And I thought, I want that. And I'm not the most creative person, so I just copied her. So is she the first woman to row solo across the Atlantic? I think she actually was the first solo woman. And it was um, in the event, the Atlantic campaigns uh, run, the professional uh, race across the Atlantic. But I am actually pretty sure she was the first solo woman. And, um, you know, 2013. And... From then, you know, I, I actually became the 16th solo ocean rower as a female. I became the 16th when I did my Atlantic crossing. And it is just a small pool of, you know, people. It's growing, obviously, each year uh, as it gets more and more exposure. But, yeah, we're, we're a small bunch of, as everybody, you know, most people call us crazies. <laughs> and I thought, of, <laughs> you know, crazy is when you just go and do something without, you know, doing all the background work 
you know, in the lead up to, and, you know, this is two years of prep, you know, two years of acquiring all of the certifications and you're getting your essential seamanship and navigation. You're learning how to be airlifted from a life raft. You're learning how to, you've got to get your VHF radio license, how to stitch yourself up in the event that you gash your leg open. You know, you're hundred percent self-sufficient out there. You're learning how to use all the equipment. You know, your boats are decked out with all the latest, greatest gear, you know, and you've got to know how to use it, of course. So we're not crazy because we actually do a decent amount of prep prior to, you know, taking off. So you put the book down and what happens next? Uh, I believe you Google someone and you find a guy in Brisbane who's accomplished this. Yeah, so my simple mind said, all right, you just got to speak to someone that's been there and done this. And I thought, all right, there's got to be other Aussies that have done it. You know, I've never heard of ocean rowing in my life. So I literally Googled Australians Atlantic Ocean Row and one name came up. He lived in Brisbane. He did this event and I thought, I'll just reach out to him. So I sent a text message via Messenger, thanks to Facebook. You know, you can contact anyone and everyone. And I said, how do I become part of this phenomenon? Where do I start? How did you fundraise? How much did it cost? Where do I get my boat from? Because I had already Googled ocean rowing boats for sale in Australia and there were none. So he sent me straight, straight away. He, he basically shot me down in flames. He, he pretty much <laughs> said, how, how many people are going to let you down? It's actually, you know, you think it's going to cost 100000 He said it's more like 200000 He made it sound super impossible. And then when I hung up, I felt completely deflated and thought, oh, who the hell do I think I am? My God. A week later, I rang him back and I said, I'm doing it with or without you. It'd be much easier with you if you can just give me some guidelines and where do I go for this and that and, you know. And from there, it was almost like I had to pass a test before he was willing to get involved and divulge all that information, which is very energetic. You know, there's a lot of energy involved in sort of um, you giving a lot of yourself to help someone do something like this. And it's almost like I did pass the test. He's like, okay, so you're fair income, are you? I said, yeah, I'm going to do it. Like, so he, he became everything. He then became, you know, he said, well, you should go and get the world record. He said, can you row? I said, well, yeah, I use the concept too in the gym, you know, at the, sometimes it's in our ward, our workout of the day, they would throw it up on the, and I said, it's one of those things that people love or hate, you know, the rowing machine has um, sort of two emotions with people, love or hate. <laughs> So, you know, he sort of got me on the way with that. He coached me to the world record. He is the world record holder for the fastest male to row a million metres. He then coached me to become the fastest female to row a million metres. Then he coached me how to row a rowing boat. You know, I'd never rowed a boat until we launched that thing. We built it. We built it in his shed, you know, and we launched her, and that is the first time I'd ever put an oar in water. By the way, what's his name? Andrew Abrahams. Yeah, incredible. And so... You have to send videos of yourself rowing, and what's his feedback on your technique? So when he first said, you know, can you row? I said, oh, yeah, we'll use the indoor rowing machine. He said, can you just send me a video of you doing a 2K time trial? So give it your best, give it your all for two kilometres, and just send me that clip. So the clip was less than eight minutes long. I thought I was fantastic, <laughs> and he took one look at the video, and he goes, oh, dear, we need to do some work. <laughs> <laughs> So I was like, oh, shit, really? I thought I was pretty good. So he then came, you know, I then invested in the machine. I bought, he said, you need to own your own machine. The hours you're going to spend on this thing in your training for the six months leading up to the actual event, you need to own your own machine. So I was like, 
can you just tell me what this is going to look like? Like, what's my life going to look like? I, I run a business. I'm self-employed. I've got to make sure I can accommodate all of this, you know. So he said, you're going to be rowing seven days a week. You're going to be doing two sessions per day. Every single Sunday will be an eight-hour row and every single Monday will be a six-hour row. Oh. And then every every day is going to be an undulating program anywhere between sort of – my shortest program was 90 minutes and my longest one was 80 minutes and it was seven days a week, two sessions a day. You know, you back it up with a morning and a night session and you do a strength and a, and a mobility session Um opposite the row so this is what made it two to two sessions a day but everything in my life became about rowing I had to give up all the things I loved you know I used to do long distance riding uh, bike riding I used to do um I used to hang from the ceiling from silks and from eras and you know I used to do um another session of a day you know I used to do like crossfit style training I had to give all that up and just do nothing but rowing so it was a six-month program and um Actually, at the bottom of the program, it's written by the Australian, uh, by the Queensland Institute of Sport, and it says Olympians have tried this program and have failed to stick to it for two weeks. So when I read that, I'm like, what chance have I got? I've got even, like, you know, I'm learning, I'm using this program to learn to row as well as go through all of the other adaptations. You know, my body had to become the long-distance seminar endurance body. You know, I also had to um, master the technique so that I don't get injured. You know, rowing for those many hours a day, if you do it wrong, you are going to wind up with all of those overuse injuries. I had to go through a strength program to very specific to the rowing technique, you know, because, you know, come event day, I knew that I'd be rowing for 14 hours a day. I knew it was going to take me in excess of five days and I was chasing numbers the whole time. So, um, you know, at the end of the program, you know, we go and we do the event at the International um, Rowing Regatta Centre in Penrith during the Australian Championship. So I'm there on a stage surrounded by rowers, surrounded by everybody who knows what it's like to sit on a rowing machine. I would see them. I used to start at 6 a.m. every day. I'd see them coming off by busloads. You know, all the schools are coming to do their rowing and blah, blah, blah. And they'd walk past me. I'm on a little stage in a little tent, you know. And then I'd see them checking out at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, walking back past me, and they'd go, she's still going. (laughs) (laughs) And they have an an appreciation for what it's like to sit on those machines. So, you know, and in the end of the program, it was 14 hours a day, five and a half days, and we took almost 11 hours off the world record, which was held by the German Olympic rower. Um, Again, part of my story is – if you really want something, it doesn't matter where you've come from. If you put the work in and you you honestly tick all those boxes, you will succeed. It will be yours. So that's the moment that you think it's almost like a Rocky film where now you're ready for this incredible race. And it is a race, an annual event every December. Before we even get to the start line, what does your boat look like? Talk to us about specifications. Uh, So she is a specifically designed ocean rowing vessel. So she's 7.7 metres long, two metres wide, full carbon fibre hull, and uh, it's designed to self-right and self-drain. So the decks are self-draining in the event that you capsize 
the um, boat will self-right. She'll pop back up. And it has all of the mod cons that your big ships have got in terms of navigational equipment. You know, there's an AIS, there's chart plotter, VHF radio, electric water maker, there's batteries, solar panels, and um, and then, of course, you have a whole host of redundancy. So in the event that my electric water maker wouldn't work or I couldn't run it because I didn't get enough amps pumped in today because there was too much cloud, I would then pull out the handheld water maker and spend an hour on my knees at the end of the rowing and uh, pump, you know, four and a half litres by hand. So it's all about having redundancy and, um, you know, we have storm strategies on board by way of drogues and sea anchors, which are basically just a, a large canvas cone that is sewn onto, you know, or uh, shackled onto 100 metres of line and you just chuck that off the bow or the stern in the conditions so that you are held into the conditions rather than sitting beam on. So as soon as you sit beam on, you're at high risk of capsizing. And, you know, capsizing for me was one of the big things I did everything I could to avoid because every time you go over, there is risk of injury to the vessel. You've got fittings and fixtures outside on the deck. You've got aerials, all my uh, navigational equipment. You know, they're electronics. They're out on the deck. Um, yeah, they're water resistant. They're not waterproof. They're not meant to be doused and held underwater for periods of time. And the salt and the sun, everything's just so harsh. So for me, I did everything I could to avoid capsizing and I never came close to capsizing. Not once did I feel like, oh, that was a close call, you know, and um, and that's because I just used my drogues a lot. So in the conditions that look like I could have been capsized if I was beam on, I would just go and set the drogue, put it out and not take that risk. You know, I had people say, oh, but it'd make a great chapter in the book, Michelle. I'm like, I don't need that excitement, trust me. <laughs> I want to get to the other end. I don't want to be rescued. I don't want to have to put my hand up and, and accept any sort of assistance or help. So I just played it super safe. I've watched footage of you on the boat. Are you in a harness? I did have a lifeline which runs from stern to bow, so it runs the length of the deck, and then you hook your own safety line onto that, and around my waist I had a safety harness, which is just a climbing belt, so I just used a climbing belt and chopped all the little bits and bobs off it, and um, I didn't use it very often. I felt safe enough you know like when I felt safe I didn't wear it because it's a pain in the bum really you know you've got this thing dangling off you you're rowing backwards and forwards and you know so a lot of the time when I look at my footage I was not actually harnessed onto my boat but in any event where I you know the waves were a little bit hairy or I was picking up some fantastic pace down the face of a wave I would put it on uh, and if I went overboard by choice I always made sure I was tethered to the boat. So, um, you know, you're very conscious and aware of your conditions and you're, you're taking those um, calculated risks while you're out there. I don't answer to anybody out there. I'm, I'm solo. I only answer to myself. And um, I feel like I made all the right calls at the right time. You're using a lot of uh, intuition, gut instincts. You know, you're using a lot of feeling. Like I felt like every time I stowed and stored my boat, it was just at the right time, you know. I could, you sort of get a, a good sense of um, a change in whether you're very sensitive 
to any change. And I knew when to start stowing store and putting stuff away, get ready, locked up, make sure you got extra water in the cabin. And uh, you listen to that. You, you can't betray those feelings out there. Um, so it sort of teaches you, even in real life, uh, how to apply that gut feeling uh, even more to your life because it's there to protect you and it's never, ever wrong. That's what I'm learning. But I did also have an amazing weather router. So, you know, Roger, would he gets fantastic um, data that he can translate. He could see where I was. You know, I had the tracker on board, which um, gave my location. Every two hours, it would um, send a new location. So it was being updated every two hours. And I moved so slow that from two hours, you know, I haven't moved far. <laughs> Maybe I've moved a couple of miles. But uh, so Rog would tell me what to expect, what was coming. He could tell 10 days out that there's a hurricane or a cyclone forming. And then five days out, he would know how it's going to track in relation to where I am. So he would give me, you know, information like, you know, I might even need you to row backwards. I might need you to row north and east, even though our trajectory and our finish line is south and west, sometimes it might need me to row north and east just to keep me in a safe quadrant as, as this beast would pass through me. And we had, you know, five hurricanes, four cyclones uh, coming across the Pacific Ocean that Rog successfully dodged me or held me right in the safest part. I was never in the eye of the storm. Uh, I was always on the outskirts and, you know, I still had to sit on a storm anchor. I still had to deploy my storm strategy and I still had to get locked in my cabin for nine days, you know, making sure I had enough emergency rations and water stowed and stored because there's times when you just can't get out on deck to make that. So, you know, thanks to Rog, I was always safe, even though there was all the storms going on around me. And you're in the Pacific Ocean, you're in the tropics, you're coming across, you know, the a conversion zone, you're coming across the equator where a lot of conflicting currents, winds and waves are all happening and, you know, you get a lot of cloud cover. So there was a lot of times I couldn't make water. You're just constantly on low-grade alert is what I say. What about your body? So what kind of toll is it taking and do you sustain injuries while you're out there? Uh, my planning uh, pre, thanks to and my training program, thanks to um, Tony Bugatti, he wrote my training program, which was gym-based, but he had me doing very unconventional movements and um, sustained holds, hanging. He said, "Go, you know, join the climbing gym. Go and hang. Get your uh, your forearms used to being so overloaded that by the time you grip the oars, that load is going to be nothing compared to hanging off your own body weight." So he had me doing lots of work under load in an extended position. He had me doing um, lots of quarter one and a quarter sort of deadlifts with a, a snatch grip, you know, wide grip. So it was the old, uh, you know, train hard, event easy kind of philosophy is what I felt that he did. And it was amazing. I never suffered with one injury. I never had a day where I woke up going, oh, I feel like I've just rode a marathon. And I'm, I was rowing 10 and 12 hours a day, every single day. The only time I would have a day off is if I was forced in my cabin because of cyclone or hurricane. And um, 
there, the program saw me without any overuse injury. So all your common ailments that a rower will suffer is overuse injuries of the forearms, your flexors and extensors. So on the inside and outside of your elbow, they suffer with ITB syndrome. They suffer with um, sciatic pain, lower back pain. And I can proudly say, hand on heart, never once did I suffer with anything. I took no pain relief for, you know, like your neurofins and your um, Voltarins, didn't need any of that. Uh, I had a protocol that I stuck to religiously every day at the end of every single rowing shift. I would get in my cabin and I would give thanks out loud. Thank you, body. Thank you so much for letting me do this to you. And I would say, what do you need from me today? What can I do for you? So it might be, you know, a little bit of a massage on the inside of one elbow. My left Achilles might need a little strip through. So I'd pull out my essential oils and my Arnica and uh, I had a whole host of homeopathy. So homeopathy is my go-to. And I treated my body with absolute appreciation and respect every single day. And I think a combination of, you know, the pre-training, it all served me so well. The Atlantic, what does it throw at you? So we heard about some hurricanes, but what about in terms of the size of the swells and also what about marine life out there as well? And I know that you'll talk about the Pacific and uh, being tailed by sharks for days on end, including baby sharks, but... Tell me about some of the obstacles you had to face. Um, yeah, so wind and current against my boat, they were always um, a challenge and it seemed to be just a common theme the whole way across the Pacific Ocean. We never really got a good break. We never got, you know, weeks on end of, you know, those favourable, predictable. You're meant to get lovely easterlies across the Pacific. Well, we just never got them. <laughs> and, uh, my weather router said, Michelle, this has been the most untypical year that you know he's seen for a long time so and we were out there in cyclone season by the time I hit the south pacific it was right in the heart of cyclone season he said it is like you're in you know bowling ball alley they're just going to keep bowling through and I've got to get you out in the middle of the coral sea where there's nowhere to duck nowhere to hide so once you come through all those islands you know Samoa Vanuatu you are in the middle of the coral sea and there ain't nowhere to go except you're just out there in it so yeah there were those challenges daily and my weather router would always look for favorable currents so sometimes he would say for the next 24 hours, just row north and west. No, I want to go south and west. He'd say go north and west because when you get there, there's going to be this amazing current that you will ride for days. And that made a massive difference. So, you know, mentally I'd have to just go, okay, accept and surrender. There is a greater plan and there is a method to the madness. Let's just go north and west. Do what Roger says because when we get there, there is like a pot of gold. And he was never wrong. Roger Badham, B-A-D-H-A-M. Yeah, he's a genius and he's, he's just got awarded. While I was out there, he got awarded OAM for his contribution to meteorology. Uh, and, you know, he routes for the Australia, America's Cup. He's done that for like 40 years. He's done stuff for the Olympics for, oh, it's like 20 Olympics. Like, And he said, you kept reminding me, Michelle, I'm not a young man. I'm in my 70s, you know. I just would love to retire. I'm like, well, no, you ain't going nowhere until I'm done. <laughs> You're with me. For both rows, where do you start and finish? Uh, so the Pacific was from Ensenada in Mexico and I finished in Port Douglas, uh, Australia. And then the Atlantic was from La Gomera, coast of Spain, into Antigua in the Caribbean. So one was, you know, 3,000 versus 8,000 miles. We had 68 days, 3,000 miles or 5,000 kilometres. That was the Atlantic. And then the Pacific was 8,000 miles or 14,000 Ks. 
uh, from landmass to landmass. So I'm staggered that you finished the Atlantic and then you dive straight back into another row. So did you feel like you weren't fulfilled? You had more to achieve? Yeah, definitely. And I felt like also with all the lessons that I learned on the Atlantic, you know, the, the first one is always your biggest investment in time, money, learnings, everything, right? So, you know, we had to build the boat. That was the biggest ticket item. We had to pay a 35,000 euro uh, entry fee to do the Atlantic. But what you're getting for that is you're learning how to row an ocean. So they give you the Bible. I used to call it the Bible. They give you the how you've got to build your boat, what specifications it has to be. They are scrutineering you, scrutinizing you the whole way. So they're teaching you how to row. They're building the foundations. And I always said to myself, if ever I wanted to go and row an ocean independently, they've given me fantastic foundations to do the Atlantic row as a greenie, you know, naive, knowing nothing. They gave the foundations. And I kind of felt like I owed it to my boat and I owed it to myself to go and row another ocean. And I used to say in the middle of the Atlantic, man, if I knew what I know now, I would have done this differently. I would change that. I'd refine that. I'd simplify this. And I was constantly looking at my boat and thinking what I would do if I rowed another ocean. So I was planting the seed while I was rowing the Atlantic. And even on my toughest days and stuff, I uh, would still think how I can do this better. Mentally, I said to myself, you know, you're suffering so badly mentally out here because you did no work. You did nothing for your mental well-being and your toolkit because I was so naive that I thought that being out there would just be my heaven. Oh, imagine no inbox. Imagine no phone. Imagine no, you know. But it ended up being one of my biggest um, mental challenges was the isolation factor. So I was inspired to do it better. And I knew that I had to work on, you know, now that we've invested the time in building the boat, I can now use all that time investment into building my mental toolkit. So I did a lot of work for my mental health for the Pacific, and it was an extremely different row. Mentally, I did not suffer anywhere near like I did on the Atlantic. It was just so different. Um, having the tools to cope with, you know, the sensations of overwhelm, of despair, of anxiety, it changes everything, which then comes back to the simple, you know, the six Ps. Prior preparation prevents piss poor performance. But, you know, let's go back to the Atlantic. I didn't know what my weaknesses were. It was my maiden voyage. It was my boat's maiden voyage. So um, we were working all that out as we go. We made a list. You know, I came back and had a list already of what I would do differently, where my weaknesses and strengths were, and uh, we invested that into the Pacific. And... I feel now, you know, I thought if I just go and do the Pacific, then I've done the world's biggest ocean. Surely I'll be done. I'll be satisfied, can hang up the boat and move on and do something else. Uh, but now, of course, the Indian is on my mind because if I do the Indian, then I have solo circumnavigated the globe. I've done, you know, that's my missing link now is the Indian Ocean. So it's on my mind that usually leads to having to do it because it, it plagues you every day until you get it done. Uh, and, of course, there's things I'll do differently again. I didn't perfect it. There's no way I did that, you know, perfectly. There's so many things that I can refine and tweak again and have a better time. I heard a fantastic podcast. You're on Talking Australia. And, of course, you received the Australian Geographic Adventurer of the Year, which is such an incredible accolade. I think you're only the fifth woman to ever receive that award. But you also spoke about, Dr. Joe Dispenza, and some of the audio that you were listening to while you were on board, 
basically to keep you sane. Oh, totally. They were my go-to. And um, any little sign of me, you know, feeling anxious or overwhelmed, I would just switch them on. And, you know, I had very carefully selected and chosen material. That's all I had available. I didn't have access to any crap. There was nothing to cloud my mind, nothing, you know, um, that was not of service to me available. I didn't have Wi-Fi. I couldn't download news content or anything. So (laughs) what I had was just uh, positive, powerful, uh, mind-blowing, mind-changing techniques that are available to everybody, you know, in terms of no side effects, how powerful the body is, all of this stuff was just reinforced and I was using it in a practical t- a practical way. You know, I needed it. I needed to know how to heal my body. I needed to, ha- you know, in the event of uh, appendicitis, and these were the things that I considered for the Pacific. Uh, what if you had nothing on board and you were weeks from a ship? You, know, you can't get a chopper out there. Uh, a chopper is too far from land to, to make those journeys. So you are literally... You have to be self-dependent. Um, you know, you've got to rely on yourself. So I used all those techniques. I can hand on heart say they work. And if you apply the discipline, and it is a discipline, to uh, adopt that material into your life, it means you have to check out a first world at least once a day to go inwards and to get into that meditative state, to get into the alpha state in order to access what we all have available. Uh, I've used it. I used it every single day. I still continue to use it. I used it for 18 months prior to my departure when I was building my toolkit. You know, Jose Silva, he was a massive part of my my toolkit, it, the Ultra Mind Controls, uh, is the Jose Silva. And I just had all their guided meditations on my uh, iPod and I would use it. That was my go-to. It gave me something to focus on in those times of feeling overwhelmed, despair and uh, anxiety. And you can bring yourself back to baseline within 20 minutes. So when you're starting to, you know, there was a day where I was in the calm before the storm. I was waiting for my first cyclone. Roger said to me, it's going to be a beauty. It's going to be a ripper. You better start getting that boat ready, Michelle. I was like, what do you mean? He said, start stowing and storing water. Have excess food in your cabin that you can eat that doesn't need preparation. He said, because you're going to be locked up there for at least four days. It ended up being nine days locked in that cabin with Cyclone Gabriel. And I went into a meltdown. It just came over me during that two days prior to the um, conditions hitting me. And, you know, when you're waiting for a cyclone, it sucks everything out of the atmosphere. So it was like the deadliest calm. There was no air in the atmosphere. I was feeling like I was just you know, I couldn't breathe and it was hot. I had the beaming down sun, the reflective sun, not a breath of wind. The air was thick with moisture and I felt everything to just get drained out of my body, every bit of strength. And I was like, oh my God, I feel like I had an elephant on my chest saying to myself, this is anxiety. This is what people suffer with every day. And I said to Roger, I rang him, I said, I don't feel good. I, I, and he's like, oh God. He said, well, eat something sweet, you know, just don't worry about rowing, just get the boat ready and just calm down. He's like, shit. <laughs> so then I, I just thought I've got to get a grip of this crap, man. And I put on a Dr. Joe guided meditation and I said to myself, I'm just going to go through the motions of 
rowing. It doesn't matter about doing miles, but I just feel like I have to be doing something that's positive. Started rowing. I'm listening to him. I'm doing as he tells me. And within 20 minutes, I was back to baseline. So, you know, again, it just hit me. The reality of anxiety hit me. And I realized that people suffer with this every single day of their life. And if they only had the tools to deal with it, they don't have to suffer like this. It's not necessary. You're almost like a case study watching some of your videos. Have you had medical specialists talk to you about what you went through? No. Um, well, my my event doctor who I chose, he is used to doing um, uh, isolated medical, you know, he's a, a, you know, like field sort of stuff where you don't have a hospital. And he did a lot of testing pre because he was very curious what happens to a body when they do something like this. He said, I've never worked with anyone that's done anything like this. In fact, I said, well, you haven't because it's never been done before. I'm the first woman in the world to do it. So he he said, well, let's do a lot of baseline testing before you go. He had my uh, DEXA scan done. So he measured my um, body fat, it broke down everything, my whole all the components that make up Michelle. You know, he did all the hormonal testing. There was like, you know, 40 vials of blood taken from me. Uh, We worked out my body mass, my lean muscle mass, my fats, my bone density, everything was taken. And then at the end, he said, the day you come in, we'll take you straight to the lab before you hydrate, before you eat, before you, you know, recuperate. And we retested again as soon as I came in. And um, what he expected to see and what he found were two very different things. He anticipated all my stress hormones should be through the roof. They should, we should have seen a rise in all your stress hormones and protein around my heart. What we found was the only rise that we saw was in my vitamin D. So a normal vitamin D count is between 20 and 45. Mine was 345. And that was the only the only rise number. So all my stress hormones were normal, cortisol levels, everything. He was fascinated by that. And then uh, we went and did my DEXA scan and I had only lost, uh, so I lost 19 kilos. Uh, but the breakdown was I lost only 3% muscle mass and 10% body fat. And we had put on an extra 10 kilos at the start line. So his advice to me was get fat before you go. You need to put on weight. And he said, I want you to put on fat. So I did. I put on 10 kilos before I departed. That equated and translated to only a 3% muscle mass loss, which is, that's fantastic. I maintained my muscle and I only lost 10% body fat, which I put on anyway. So I came back looking pretty good. I didn't come back looking like a Somalian. Yeah, the reason I ask about your state of mind is because some of the videos you like Tom Hanks in that movie Castaway. And I think at one stage on the first row, you even sent a shout out to me in the middle of the ocean. And, uh, (laughs) you know, some of the things you did to overcome this, like I think you uh, had milestones that you celebrated. So you'd open something special. The video on day 117, you're really struggling and you're down to just rations. And, you know, you're a great story about the human spirit and what you can overcome. Oh, thanks, Steve. Yeah, look, I hope hope people see that sort of um, messaging. You know, it is true. You get the down days. You get the days where uh, things are going all against you. And, yes, I did have uh, some little meltdowns, but, I was able to pull myself out of them very, very quickly on the Pacific thanks to preparation and gratitude and appreciation always, they they trump everything. You know, when you 
go back and reflect on who helped you get where you are. You feel an overwhelming sense of gratitude, which changes your vibration. It changes your frequency and it can really turn the situation around. Do you know what I mean? And so I use that a lot. Uh, and, you know, yes, your name did come up. It came up on both rows and just everyone that did little bits and pieces on the way and, you know, other people that, you know, donated lots of money. You you sort of use that as your, you know, the smallest token of appreciation I can give back to these people is finishing this thing, getting off at the other end safely, um, you know, in good health and together we did this. You know, that's the kind of um, sensation that that gave me uh, and it paid off every time to come back to appreciation and gratitude. Talk to me about raw beauty. Some of the <laughs> images are just mind-blowing. Yeah, good old Mother Nature. I used to say to her, uh, you, you know, thank you so much. I get to witness you in your raw, runway-ready, take-me-as-I-am natural beauty. And uh, you are the boss, I used to say to her. I know that. I appreciate it. I'll work with you. So there were days when I would say, okay, so this is what it's going to be today, is it? And I'd say, well, let's dance. And I'd find <laughs> a way just to work with her. You know, you can't work against her. So I I learned that, you know, I used to just play with the waves for a while until I sort of got a bit of a rhythm, you know, to my beat sort of thing. And uh, we worked together. But the the experiences of a bird coming and hovering at eye level and just eyeballing you while it's hovering in midair, it's goosebumping, you know, your whole body just goosebumps and you're just like, oh, my God, who are you? Like, what message are you trying to deliver me? And the sharks that would follow my boat and they'd play beautifully all day with all the fish. You know, I attracted a lot of fish. Anything in the middle of an ocean, a log or a, you know, a shipping container, you will always attract a lot of sea life. And um, so I always had, you know, like a, I was like a crash in the end. I reckon they all came and had their babies under my boat. And they, <laughs> they left and left all the babies. And every now and then the big, the bigger fish or the I would call them the parents, they've come back to check the kids out and they're like, okay, we'll leave you in the crash. You're safe here. And they'd duck off and come back. And I watched this story unfold, you know, over the weeks and the months that I was out there. And to me, that's the biggest privilege that I get to witness that in its raw natural state without all of the uh, distractions of first world, it's a pure privilege and, you know, it's an honour, a pleasure and a privilege is what I caught myself saying to my GoPro, you know, one afternoon. I'm like, man, this is just pure privilege and pleasure and honour to see this. And when the turtle would turn up, you know, if a turtle turned up, it's like we've just rolled out the red carpet and everyone's come running out from everywhere. They mobbed the turtle, like, and they'd be all, and I think, what's going on with the turtle, man? Why is he the superstar? Why is he the celebrity? And what I worked out was they all pick all the stuff off his shell and they're cleaning him up and, you know, he's, like, loving it, saying, thanks, God, I needed that. And then he just takes off and everyone then goes about their business as normal. It's just everything's in perfect harmony. I'd imagine sharks, they're inquisitive, I'd imagine there were some that were longer than your boat. Um, so in the shark world out there, I basically I reckon two metres was the biggest shark that I saw, which I have to say I'm very grateful for <laughs> because it is intimidating and uh, you do have a very active imagination of, you know, if they just flick their tail, you know, if you think of a whale, if I had a whale because the whales are bigger than my boat, 
if they just flick their tail, they could send me, you know, like a fly. So, yeah, the shark life, I, I basically had anything between one and two metres, but they were following my boat constantly. And then there was a period of weeks where it became a feeding frenzy. As soon as the sun went down, it was a feeding frenzy and the water would be boiling around me where the sharks were feeding on the fish under my boat. And one of them actually launched out of the water to, to chase, in chase of a fish, and he landed on my deck, thrashing around like an absolute maniac on my deck. And I was, you know, I was in my cabin when it all happened. I quickly got the GoPro, I quickly got my head torch. I'm looking out, I'm like, oh, my God, I've got a shark on my deck. And um, I was not going out there to save him. There's no way I was going out there. So I let him thrash himself around. It probably took 15 or 20 minutes. And then um, the next day I threw him overboard. So I left him out on the deck all night and lifted him overboard and chucked him in the next day. Because as I watched them swim beside me, they bend right back on themselves. And that's why I didn't want to go and pick him up by the tail and chuck him in. Because if he was still alive, he could bend back and bite me easy. No, no problem yeah it just gives you a bird's eye view of you know them in their natural habitat and you're in their playground you know it's that's the privilege as well is that you're in their playground it was yeah quite phenomenal um to be part of it and the the night sky the stars and a full moon oh my goodness every night I was just in awe I'd open my hatch I'd look up in the sky and oh wow I just it, you never get tired of it it never ever became I don't feel like I ever became complacent or took it for granted it was um just something every day I'd sort of find myself in a state of awe over something or other you know what I mean so how has your life changed I mean you're a, a lady with a dream and you do all of this preparation work and then you accomplish one ocean and create history then you do it again this monumental 14 and a half thousand kilometer trek and all the obstacles you overcome, but how has that changed your life? So there were a few things I knew that I didn't want my life to be when I came home. And, um, you know, I'm a self-employed massage therapist. I've done it since 2007. It served me very well. I loved my job. I was passionate. It didn't feel like I was working. But I knew before I departed, I'm not coming back to this. It's, it's a chapter and I'm, I'm closing it. So I'm getting rid of my table, getting rid of my towels, everything. So I did that uh, and I've come home and it's like, what now? Yes, you sit down and you think, you know, and you're thinking about that when you're out there. What do you want your life to look like when you return? I was hoping that I would, uh, you know, be able to generate a decent income from, you know, sharing my story on the stage in the corporate settings, you know, speaking to associations, schools, and, you know, imparting the lessons that I learned that can be used in a practical sense uh, in the first world, you know, coping with the anxiety and all of the things of first world. So, I am busy trying to build that business now and you know ultimately what I would love is just to be a professional adventurer like that's I would love to just come home unwind and recuperate regenerate rejuvenate from what was because they do break you a little bit you know when you're out there there it does take a toll on your body you know I had to come home and do lots of rehab I you know, lost a lot of mobility, strength, stability. Uh, you know, your ankles are planted at 42 degrees for 12 hours a day. That plays a big, uh, takes a big toll on your body 
all up the whole, you know, kinetic chain, you know, it makes you stiff through your hips, you stiff through your lower back. So you come back, you rebuild. I'd love to just be packing a bag and going off on another adventure where I take myself out of, I call it the matrix, the first world environment where I, you know, go and immerse myself, whether it's trekking across, uh, you know, the PCT or doing, um, you know, lots of beautiful hikes and treks around the world, whether it's a sailing event where I just check out of first world and I'm back on the water again. That's what I'd love to be doing. And I need to make that happen, you know, financially earn some decent money, which you can do through speaking and sharing, you know, all of your lessons learned. And that's what I'm sort of doing at the moment, trying to craft that and get that off the ground, up and running. What does the Indian Ocean look like? Where do you start and finish? That would be from Perth and you would go to South Africa. Uh, It has a few other challenges like piracy. Uh, That is a real risk. And um, as you're getting closer to the shoreline of South Africa, so, you know, there's protocols and and, um, you do a whole risk analysis on that. There's, you know, advising all of the authority bodies in those waters when you're getting close. You're, you know, trying to establish some schedules with other yachts that are doing the crossing. So a lot of the yachties that do those crossings, they will do it in like a little, like a convoy and uh, they'll do regular schedules with each other on the VHF radio at uh, scheduled hours of the day. They also notify governing bodies and authority bodies of that water, you know, the Coast Guards and the Navy and whatnot. So that would be uh, a very different kind of planning, risk planning and assessment, Um, a lot of collaborating with uh, bodies and whatnot and having really good monitoring team back here as well who are in the loop. It's uh, probably about a five thousand it's a little bit bigger than the atlantics it's probably four and a half maybe five thousand miles so somewhere in between the atlantic and the pacific in terms of size and would probably take about a hundred days and of the three which is the more treacherous i'm saying the pacific the pacific is everything man you know all those things you got to endure you know age just trying to get off the coastline of mexico that was such and go it was looking like i wouldn't make it for the first three weeks of that uh row it was looking like i was very much going to end up back in shore down the very southern tip of mexico and not be able to get out of the swirling eddy that the currents do down there uh then you got to get across the into national um, tropical conversion zone. Then you've got to get across the equator and then you're in the South Pacific. And so I personally would say it's the Pacific Ocean. I think if I can row the Pacific, I can row anything. And not not including, though, anything to do with ice. So through the Antarctics and, and those ice regions, that's a different ball game. I'm not even going there. Would not consider it for a million dollars. <laughs> I could talk to you all day. I'm just fascinated and I love the idea of being a lifelong adventurer. The perfect way to finish would be if you were inspired by the Roz Savage book, when does yours come out? <laughs> just in time well, for Christmas. Well, yes, I actually, um, I did write one. It did get published while I was out there and we took it off the market and you know record all the copies because I didn't request permission to use names and whatnot. So my faux pas, my mistake, I've learned a lot through it. So I said, let's pull it off, upset some people. Let's pull it off the market. I will rewrite it. I'm not, you know, going to use it as it's not a fail, but it's, a, you know, one of those projects where I've learned a lot of lessons. 
And uh, so I've already got a really good basis of the book and now I can add the Pacific to it. So I need to put my finger out, get off my bum and make that happen ASAP. And what do you call it? Because you've got a couple of mottos that you live by. Yeah, I love uh, Don't Die Wondering. And, uh, you know, that's one of those things. Or, you know, I say yes. They're the things that I say in the world, in my world. I just say yes to stuff. People ask me, do you want to go climbing? Yeah, okay. And then I'm like, what have I actually committed to? I don't know the detail. I just say yes before I know the detail. And then I know to be true is the universe delivers everything you need to make that happen. When you commit so fully, faithfully, and so, you know, 100%, the details get worked out. You don't have to know the what, the how, and the why. You just have to know that you're in no matter what. Oh, yeah, I'm doing it. <laughs> I said yes. So don't go wondering and just say yes. They are certainly uh, what I live by. They're my motto. They're my mantra. Is there anyone in the rowing world that, you know, is your hero? I'd have to just say good old Roz. And also I, I am fascinated with uh, Sir Chay Blythe. And uh, he rode the Atlantic in an open dory back in the 60s. He was the first person with his mate. They rode across it. Uh, you know, they were doing it with no electronics, no navigational equipment. They didn't have all the gear that we go out with. They didn't have a water maker. And um, I actually spoke to him a few times while I was coming across the Pacific and uh, we got acquainted thanks to one of my main sponsors, uh, their good mates. So, you know, he, he got me in touch with Sir Chay Blythe. And, yeah, we had some good conversations out there. I think, you know, the way he did it, he was a pioneer. So it's the pioneers of adventure who I am so grateful for because they give people like me permission to go and do this stuff. You know, I'm not a pioneer, but I, I see an idea, I love it, and I think, well, okay, they've just proven to me that it can be done. They're giving me the permission to go do it. And uh, I love that. I'm so grateful to fellow adventurers because they make it possible for the people like me in the world. And hopefully, you know, I'll do the same. But, uh, yeah, good old Roz, thank you very much. You <laughs> planted the seed. You made me realise that, you know, if you can do it, I can do it. That was my attitude. And also, yeah, Sir Chay Blythe, who made it possible in the first place for everybody else to follow. Yeah, yeah, I tell you, it's incredible. I love the ocean, but it also, to me, sounds terrifying, particularly when you described not being able to see land anymore and then suddenly you're just isolated well done. I'm giving you a uh, standing ovation in my studio here. I've taken up enough <laughs> of your precious time, but uh, thank you so much for being a guest. Awesome. Thanks, Dave. Michelle Lee on The Perfect Ten. What an incredible story. First, the Atlantic rowing solo, then the Pacific and now potentially in the middle of 2024, the Indian Ocean. And let's not forget, this came from reading an autobiography about Roz Savage. So, so Michelle confessed she was never an athlete, but she just had a dream. And then she mentioned the six Ps. It's actually a motto that we live by in radio. Prior preparation prevents poor presentation. She learned from her mistakes on the first row across the Atlantic and then for the second row really focused on her mental strength. And I wonder how many of us could actually be in a small compartment on a rowboat in the middle of the ocean for nine days straight. It's just remarkable and thanks again to Michelle for joining us and best wishes in her quest moving forward to row three oceans. It's superhuman stuff and only a handful of people on the planet have ever achieved it.
Thanks also to Robson Civil Projects. We love them at The Perfect 10. They're based here on the Central Coast where it all began over 60 years ago. Now they're also in Sydney, the Hunter Valley, in Dubbo, and also in Mudgee, one of the best wine-growing regions in New South Wales and also Australia, including one of our favourites, beautiful Bunnamagoo, who do some fabulous reds. As we mentioned earlier, North Queensland Cowboys superstar fullback Scott Drinkwater coming up soon. Also Jack Cogger, the man who turned the grand final for the Penrith Panthers. As always, thank you for listening. Take care, and we'll catch you again soon on The Perfect Ten. The Perfect Ten.